Hi, I'm Len App from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Garic de Tenay. Based in London, Garic is the founder of two fashion brands focused on providing sustainable products. The Goudron Blanc brand makes unique crew and v-neck t-shirts using organic cotton, and the Blackwood brand creates handmade accessories from cork leather. Garic also manages projects for What If Innovation, a global consulting firm that works with, works with Fortune 500 companies to use an experimentation-based approach to achieving growth. A graduate of London Business School, Garic is also trained in the law and is a guest lecturer at University College London, where he teaches digital marketing and innovation. Gerig is the author of the LeanPub book, The Value Mix, Create Meaningful Products and Services for Your Audience. In the book, he helps people to better understand the connection between market research and product strategy so they can better succeed at building amazing products and services targeted at the right customers. You can follow Gerig on Twitter at Gerig de Tenet, and you can read his blog and find out more about him at gerig.co.uk. In this interview, we're going to talk about Gerig's background and career, professional interests, marketing, his insights into product development and positioning and uh, other insights that he covers in his book. And at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub a little bit. So thank you, Gerrit, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Len. It's a pleasure to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you became interested in studying law. Yeah, of course, of course. So I, I grew up in Paris. Um, and now I live uh, actually in London, but I spent 25, uh, 20 years of my life in uh, in Paris, um, and yeah, I had like a normal uh, normal Parisian childhood. And actually, I, I was ne- had never really been interested in in law. Um, I uh, quite uh, early on the um, I was quite early on very interested in um, software development, especially around video games. Um, and a lot of interest in marketing and business. Um, I actually uh, got really interested in marketing after reading um, Ogilvy on advertising. This was like a, a big unlock for me. Uh, but what got me into law is actually uh, a long chat that I had with one of my very, very old friends. Um, we're talking about my future and what I was about to choose as a degree uh, straight after high school. And I was thinking about going into business and uh, doing all of these things that I really, really liked. And, and my friend was like, hold on, Garrick. Like, you can pick up whatever you want um, in business since you're already very passionate about that. Uh, you should actually do something that is going to challenge yourself a bit more. And obviously, he's uh, also very passionate about law. And he, his um, theory was that law is a, a way of thinking. It's a, <clears throat> a mental model as uh, some people call it. And he was telling me that basically uh, law would provide me um, many more challenges and kind of restructure my uh, way of thinking in a way that would help me more as a business person later on in my life. Uh, so basically, I followed, uh, I followed his advice. And I'm really, very glad uh, that I have done that. It was, it was indeed a very challenging degree. Um, but uh, it's one that uh, is really uh, helping me every day. Um, one thing about when you talk about the way of thinking that's really interesting, it, it, it leads me to my next question, which is, how does the legal system work in France? Um, it's, very, it's very different from a kind of common law system that I think probably most of our North American listeners outside Quebec would be familiar with. Yes, yes, it is indeed. Um, and what's, what's really interesting in France is uh, a lot of... Um, our law is based, especially the civil law, is based on the Napoleon uh, Code, the civil code. And yeah, we, we do rely much more on, on the law itself than on what uh, judges, uh, the way judges interpret law. That being said, um, the, the two, the two um, legal systems, so the common law systems and the civil law systems, are getting closer to each other with uh, the civil law system uh, becoming uh, more based on jurisprudence and um, the common law system being more and more based on uh, the law itself. And in the civil law system, is, is it as sort of confrontational and adversarial and theatrical as the common law system can, can be? So not not that much. It, it can be sometimes, but yeah, it's very very far from uh, the the typical uh, law series that uh, we we love to watch, such as Suits or um, Boston Legal. Yeah, it seems it seems like when you talk again, when you're going back to what you said about the way of thinking, the under a civil law system, you kind of my understanding is that you have to you you can command the system 
in a way that you you can't in a common law. So it's a very very structured way of thinking indeed. Um, you have to to qualify the facts. Um, there's actually one of the things that I think is really really interesting uh, and that you can learn when you you follow law degrees, the importance of language and actually qualifying uh, what everything means. Uh, it is actually very important in the the business world, and I do believe that uh, this is a, one of the main roles of leaders. Uh, but yeah, anytime you you make a contract, you have to be very precise on uh, what you're contracting about. It's it's really interesting you say that. We were we were chatting a little bit before uh, we started recording this interview about how um, I, I used to live in London, where where Garrick is now, um, and one of the things I did there was investment banking. But that was after doing a doctorate in English literature. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more about the the very practical and fundamental importance that language has, uh, not only in sort of very complex situations like let's say a legal case or or a, a big M and A deal, but just to keep the foundation moving efficiently in any kind of human interaction. It's just so important. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, so, so you eventually moved to London. What, uh, what drove that? So what drove me to London is I had the opportunity while I was studying law to um, spend a year in London at University College London. And I, I just wanted to explore the world. So I was, okay, let's go. And at the time, um, when I moved to London, I could barely speak English. It was just five years ago. Uh, so I really wanted to improve, uh, improve that skill. I think it's really important to speak English in this uh, in this world today. So this was the main rationale, and I I just love the city. I love the the people who are there. I love the the diversity of the the people who are there, and so I decided to to stay. I went straight into uh, London Business School, um, which was an amazing experience. Um, when I talk about diversity, uh, London Business School provided like the most increase in insane uh, experience around that. Uh, in my class, we had people from 45 different countries. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting mix of culture, mix of backgrounds. Um, and I did learn a lot doing that. Uh, and this basically confirmed my, uh, my choice of career. Um, my deep interest in business is um, also fueled by the fact that not as low business uh, allows you to, to travel more. Uh, it opens you to the world, and that's something that I find very interesting. Uh, having studied in the UK myself, I'm familiar with the um, amazing uh, diversity of people that you're surrounded by and that you get to interact with when you're there, uh, which leads me, I guess I wasn't planning on this, but to a political question. Um, are, are people in your circles concerned about Brexit with respect to you know, the presence of people in, in London uh, who aren't British? I think it is a concern, and I do think that it's not only people from abroad, foreigners, who are concerned about that. Anyone in the UK, I think, at the moment is a bit concerned. Even people who are embracing Brexit, just because there is not a clear, rational, um, or at least a clear vision of where um, England and the UK is going to go. Um, so that's that is a, a very uh, yeah sensitive topic here at the moment. I bet. Uh, so uh, what was your next move after London Business School? So straight after London Business School, I started doing uh, freelancing. But what I have to say is uh, <laughs> while I was actually studying law um, in France, um, I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't stay away from the, from the business world. And this is uh, at the time uh, I studied uh, Goudon Blanc. So it was in 2011. I had this idea of uh, launching a, a clothing line especially focusing at the time what I thought would be a great idea I was thinking that V-neck t-shirts where um, there was basically a gap in the market um, and I was interested in just launching my, my own business. So I was like, okay, after reading the, the Lean Startup, I thought that it would be great to start an MVP. So I started investing a bit uh, in this business, created a first collection um, and, uh, and launched the, the company. So straight after LBS, I, I was still running the company. Um, it was about uh, four, four and a half years later. I was doing very well. And on the side, I was also doing lots of freelancing, uh, working with startups, uh, accelerators, incubators, and venture capitalists. Um, and it was a very interesting um, experience as well. Uh, the, the world of startup, especially in London, is, yeah. has been booming uh, a lot. A lot of fintech companies 
uh, were there. And so uh, most of my work was helping them to grow, focusing on helping their marketing capabilities to um, develop, as well as uh, helping them to figure out their product market fits. I'm really interested in uh, hearing a little bit of the details of how you set up a, a fashion line. Um, uh, did you did you have contacts that could get you in touch with designers and uh, suppliers and things like that, or did you have to learn all that on your own? So I had to learn everything from scratch. Uh, I didn't know anything about fashion or uh, how to start a clothing line. The only thing I knew was my experience as a, as a fashion consumer. So as everyone, uh, I used to, uh, I still go shopping. And um, and basically I used that as a, a first way to learn about the where things are working in uh, in the fashion industry. But I was also very lucky, and maybe this is also what influenced me a bit to, when I chose this industry, is that in Paris, uh, there is a very big uh, fashion scene, especially uh, a lot of fashion startups. Um, so when you think about uh, some um, cities in the world that are hubs for some specific industries, Paris is definitely a hub for, for the fashion industry, and this is encouraging a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs to, to start in this industry. So the first thing I did, uh, and in hindsight, I think it was actually quite a clever move, is I started to join uh, a lot of uh, groups of uh, fashion entrepreneurs. And I started just having chats about how they run their businesses, learning um, about everything they had to say. And this was really, really useful to uh, to understand the kind of nut and bolts of uh, the fashion industry. In terms of the next steps after that, I had to find a supplier. Uh, this is the kind of the big, big challenge that any young entrepreneur has because you, you need to find someone who is reliable, someone who can trust um, you and as well as have uh, faith in, in your vision for, for your products. And it's not the easiest thing to do uh, because these, uh, all of the factories um, get a lot of demand from uh, and a lot of requests from young entrepreneurs, so you have to be very, um, very clear on your vision and convince them that they are the right people to invest in. Because even if you have the the impression, you're under the impression that you, you're the the clients, the customer, and you you're the one paying for for the products. Actually, uh, for a factory at the beginning of a journey, it's not that profitable for them to serve the smaller clients. They used to. Uh, sell big batches, thousands of pieces uh, of clothing, and working with small startup when they are not even sure that there's going to be another collection uh, following the first one, uh, it's a big, uh, big ask for them. So I fortunately found um, the right, uh, the right supplier. I'm still working with them uh, today, and. Um, it was a, a long journey. It took me a year, a bit more than a year and a half to find uh, the right person. I went to lots of trade shows, uh, Googled a lot, just sent tons of emails, uh, and at some point just found someone who believed in the project. And I was lucky enough to get the person that was able to provide the quality I was uh, requiring for the, the brand, as well as someone who was uh, willing to work with me on the long term. And... Uh... Having had that experience, you then created the Blackwood brand. I think just uh, just was it just this year? Yes, yes, just this year. So Blackwood is a, a brand that I created with a, a friend, Oscar, and the idea was to um, when, when I started. So kind of going back to when I started Good Omblon, uh, one of the ideas was to to bring a more sustainable approach to to fashion, and this is something that uh, with Oscar we we discussed a lot. And what we, we had in mind, our vision was to find ways to make fashion more respectful and more eco-friendly. And what we realized during um, some market research is that the leather uh, industry uh, is actually not that good for the environment. Leather goods, creating leather goods, um, actually pollute a lot. Um, so some people manage to do it fairly or, uh, in a fairly way. But um, most of the, the leather goods that we find on markets actually um, are very bad for the environment. So we wanted to find a, a good alternative to leather. And what we found is lots of people talk about, when they talk about alternative to, to leather, 
Actually, the main alternative for leather is plastic. I really don't find that this was such a, a nice material to, to work with. So we decided to, to scout for uh, eco-friendly alternative to leather. And we found an amazing uh, first uh, material that we wanted to try out. This, was, this is um, called cork leather. So it's uh, plant-based leather made out of uh, cork, which is the material you get when you harvest the, ba uh, the bark of uh, an oak, uh, especially um, so what are called cork oaks, uh, which are found in Portugal, mostly in Spain. Yeah, it was really fascinating reading uh, your, your, on your website as I was preparing for this interview. I'd, I hadn't heard of cork leather before, and it just seems like a really fascinating product. Um, I mean, some things that become, you know, I had not examined before, but like, of course, cork is waterproof. Yes. Uh, that's why it's used, <laughs> it's used uh, for, you know, corking wine. Um, uh, but I didn't know about uh, the fact that it's used in rockets. Yes, yes. So NASA, NASA uses it because um, of the property of, Cork, cork uh, insulate very well, um, and so they they use it next to their engines to to protect them from the protect the other pieces from heat, basically. And so, when you create a brand like Blackwood, what what do you do to get the get the word out about it? So this is a very um, a very big challenge for most startups. Uh, when you think about the startup, they often have a great idea. Uh, and not necessarily the, the ability to um, reach the market. Um, and what, I, what we do, our approach, and I think it's uh, the, the, one of the ways of approaching it is to first focus on what is called the early adopters. Um, so people who are in, um, in some ways really, really interested in the, the product. And when you, you look at um, cork leather, it's a great alternative to... Um, animal leather and people who are really uh, not willing to use animal leather are people who are vegetarians. Uh, and my, my co-founder Oscar uh, is uh, one of them. So we are mainly trying to, to reach out to them. Uh, this is one of the, the ways to, to kind of um, make the people hear about Blackwood. So we're tapping into uh, communities of vegetarians, uh, reaching out to influencers and bloggers has been really helpful to, to get the words out. Uh, another way we've been uh, thinking about that is now Christmas is coming up very soon. And uh, we wanted to find ways to uh, show the product to people. Uh, and it's really expensive to have a store in London. <laughs> so as a startup, we cannot really afford that, especially uh, around uh, Christmas. So what we decided to do is to um, run pop-up events. Um, and to get really close to the people who could be potentially uh, interested in Blackwood. So we started organizing lots of pop-up events in uh, offices in London. So we go <laughs> directly to uh, our potential um, target audience uh, and present them the products. Um, and this has been actually a great way of uh, getting the word out because it's really convenient uh, for uh, people uh, to get a company good products to, to come to their office so they can save time on um, buying, uh, doing that Christmas shopping. And also it's it's a good way for them to find ideas because one of the big pains we realized for, for people around Christmas is actually to, to find what they, they can offer as gifts. Uh, it's really difficult to find new ideas beyond the, the normal ties and socks and, <laughs> and scarves that we, we all get every year. Yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great idea. I hadn't thought of that before, um, especially around Christmas time. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you before we, we move on to the next part of the interview and talk about marketing from, from a high level and then get down into some specifics, I wanted to talk to you about the consultancy What If. Yes. Um, I was really interesting when I was reading their website and uh, reading about how they place an explicit emphasis on the importance of having an experimentation-led approach when they're doing work for Fortune 500 companies. Um, I also very much enjoyed the story of how they um, helped Cialis beat Viagra by realizing that, I don't know if you know this particular one, but that um, uh, they realized that Viagra's marketing approach appealed to half the people involved in, uh, in a relationship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and that if you if you made something that wasn't quite basically so something that uh, a, a brand that was targeted at p 
people on both sides of the relationship that that might help uh, get attention and get customer loyalty and it and it worked how does the how, what what, it, what is the experimentation led approach how does that work yeah no and to, to highlight um, I think the, the principle behind uh, the story you just shared is I think the power of insights and this is the power of understanding your your audience and who you are serving uh, when you create your your product strategy and when you when you're really clear on what they want and what they, how they what they feel about uh, the the context where they're in when they use or can use your product, this can uh, really uh, really help when you create your your strategy. Um, to answer your questions about uh, having an experiment-led uh, approach, which is what we we call like building a, an experimentation uh, engine. We do believe that um, innovation is a big learning uh, learning journey, and you you can't uh, predict what's happening in the what's going to happen when you you come up with new ideas. The the only way of really um, working it out is to to see how the market reacts to to what you have in mind. And experiments is the best way of learning. It's uh, using what we call realness, so making it real as early as possible in order to to get accurate responses. The problem is most of the time we do overthink uh, what we uh, have in mind for our strategy. And uh, and putting things in market is actually the, the best way of uh, kind of testing our thinking. And what we, we tend to do um, as much as possible is to, even when we test and show things to, to consumers, or to the, the users of the products we have is to remove this lab effect. So a lot of people think that they're testing products when they do focus groups um, in a very uh, very neutral environment, but actually you're so far removed from reality that you create uh, a bias that doesn't allow you to capture really what's, uh, how people are going to react normally in front of your product. Uh, and <laughs> the, the, the hard truth is most of the time people uh, actually ignore your product. Uh, because you you can't ask people to to pay attention to everything that is uh, in the market, but so yeah, we we do try hard to to experiment in a real environment every time we have to test our thinking, and we start doing it very very early on in our innovation journeys. That's really interesting. Uh, is it is it something that's kind of culturally this sort of like just get something out there and iterate? Is that is that a difficult message to get across and to get approval from when you're working with a really big company and a, an established company? So that's something that is actually quite tough, yes, because these companies aren't really used to to that level of agility. But that's something that's fortunately is quite trendy right now. So people are more and more willing to uh, to make it happen. Um, it tends to be quite easy-ish. Um, for example, one of my projects was around snacking, where helping a big FMCG company to figure out a, a quite novel... Um, proposition in the snacking industry, in our snacking category. And this is fairly easy to, to get them to, um, to experiment and put products in markets. That being said, obviously, they, they have some uh, regulation around the ability to um, make sure that these products won't uh, trigger any allergies or things like that. What, when it becomes more interesting is when you work with highly regulated um, companies such as uh, the pharmaceutical uh, industry or uh, in finance, insurances. Um, and what we've observed and what we've been doing a lot is helping these companies to get a level of understanding of what it means to experiment, what is required to experiment, so they can work hand-in-hand uh, hand with their uh, compliance departments to make sure that everything um, is under control. Uh, this requires a big shift uh, in mindsets first, and it's probably the hardest part of it, is making sure that everyone from the people who are actually making innovation happen in their these big uh, companies uh, are following, as well as their managers, as well as the, the C-level uh, executives. And then it's uh, making sure that uh, the whole organization follows this uh, new culture with the right processes. So everything can be uh, under control. Um, what's really interesting is this is something that is really empowering. Uh, I've been working with now many, uh, many executives uh, on this. And 
every time we experiment and run experiments, this is something that gets everyone excited. It gets the people who are experimenting uh, directly with a new proposition really, really exi- excited because they move from this old world of we think about an idea, then we kind of create a massive business case. It takes years and years to launch something to we actually think about an idea, obviously uh, fine tune it, and very, very quickly we, we make it real. Um, and bringing ideas to life is something that is really powerful to excite people in an organization. And then the managers also are really, really interested in that because they they see a whole new new world. Instead of uh, having a look at lots of uh, kind of assumptions and data that they they get in um, their business cases, they actually see uh, people reacting to these new propositions and these new strategies. Again, so uh, just, uh, instead of just more PowerPoint, it's actual products and data. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, th- th- this is really, really energizing. And I guess there is a big, uh, big overlap with what you do at LeanPub, uh, which is also allowing authors to, to experiment with their, um, their books. Um, yeah, yeah. I can talk about that, that briefly, um, before we will talk a little bit more about, you know, self-publishing and the LeanPub approach, uh, at the end of the interview, but yeah, you were, you were, you were triggering all kinds of things in my mind, uh, as you were talking, uh, one of the, one of the sort of fundamental, theoretical foundations of LeanPub's approach to publishing is that you should publish a book. If, you're going, if you've got a book project, one thing you should do, you should put up a landing page, see if you can get attention there, um, and put up maybe more than one landing page on the web for more than one type of project. You know, most authors usually have a number of things they're interested in potentially writing about. And then you can sort of see, and you, you can you know change the title around, you can change the way you present it. And then when you start writing a book, instead of doing something in you know writing that's analogous to what you were describing which is like spending years in isolation like making all these assumptions about what's going to happen and then dumping a final product uh into a world that you haven't even engaged with yet necessarily with respect to that product is is you know not necessarily the best approach and what you can do instead is you can start publishing your book when you're two or three chapters in and then you can see if you actually get attention and and people will i mean if they're not paying attention that's a signal uh if they are they might actually interact with you directly and that's one of the fun things about you know, the, the online world is that people can very easily give you their feedback, give you their comments, communicate with you, or even like, you know, just communicate about you on social media. And then you can see, you can get all kinds of information and feedback about what you're doing. And it actually fundamentally changes the way you write books. Yeah, there's just so much power in getting your target audience to, to react to what you have in mind. Yeah, uh, speaking, spe- so I wanted to, I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about marketing. And I wanted to start at a high level with uh with like what I hope is kind of a funny anecdote um, that I hope makes a little bit of sense. Uh, so I, my, my dad grew up in the 1940s uh, on a farm in a very small, near a very small rural town in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan. It's right in the middle of, of Canada. Uh, and the province when he was born had only existed for about 30 years or so. Um, and the products he could buy were the ones that were stocked by the very few shopkeepers that were, were sort of within horse and buggy distance, essentially of where he lived and the 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 reason i bring all that up is that to this day if he goes shopping with me say for jeans when i'm visiting at christmas time he expects me to buy whatever jeans are available the first store we go to because those are the jeans um and obviously this situation is no longer the case for people in developed countries uh, and even increasingly in developing countries and i wanted to ask setting that foundation of just how dramatically things have changed in like within a a lifetime uh, at a really high level how would you say that the combination of online shopping and social media like Instagram has changed the nature of marketing itself I think this has been a huge uh, transformation in terms of how we we see things and has actually accelerated what was already happening is we as you said uh, moved from a world where Creating something was actually uh, the biggest uh, and the hardest part of um, of the journey. To uh, actually selling something becomes much more difficult. There is not uh, a lack of uh, capabilities to to produce and create. There is a, a problem of actually uh, finding the right things to create and selling them. Uh, and what we've observed with social media and uh, e-commerce is just an acceleration of. Uh, the, the ability to, to create and sell. Um, and this has moved uh, us into a world where there's even much, much more uh, noise that's what we're used to. And I, I, I do remember um, 
that I think it was in the 70s that uh, Al Ries published his book, uh, Positioning. And he was already uh, talking about uh, a world where um, communication was so noisy and it was impossible to get the, the word out. Uh, and now if you think about the world today compared to, to the 70s, it's, it's just insanely uh, more uh, noisy than it, it was before. But I think what e-commerce and uh, social media has done um, is giving the ability to uh, a lot of people, meaning actually everyone, to uh, to create and sell things. Um, and this is just an amazing tool that uh, we all have in our pockets, using our phones or in computers, is this ability to um, be entrepreneurs or like solopreneurs and be able to, to run businesses just based on uh, an idea and uh, ability to, to reach and the ability to reach out to to markets and that social media is also very very useful for um, getting the story out i think we moved from a world where as you, as you said for for your father things are very functional uh, <laughs> a gene is a gene yeah. Um, to a world where um, actually we rely uh, more and more on our emotions to to make the decisions of what we buy. Um, and if you think about the, the way you make a decision between uh, um, glasses, sunglasses, for example, um, you you wouldn't buy a, a pair of Ray-Ban or, um, or Warby Parker, for example, uh, just because one is more functional than the other one. You have a whole set of beliefs and beha- like um, biases that are getting into um, your decision-making process when you do that. And the way you make these decisions is based on the stories that these brands uh, are telling you through various channels of communications that can be social media, can be your friends, movies, uh, and the kind of whole set of uh, channels that they, they have uh, access to. It's really interesting. I, uh... You brought up the concept of a solopreneur. This is something I've been thinking about. I'm, not, I'm kind of old enough to that that uh, things like YouTube stars are something I have to kind of do a lot of work to understand as a phenomenon. Um, but one thing that I find very interesting when I think about phenomena like that are like um, even people like Ninja, who uh, uh, is on Twitch playing you know Fortnite and making millions of dollars a year now. One thing that people do now that I think is different from the way they would have done things in the past is they they will buy things and pay for things because they want the person they're paying to succeed. So there, there is, um, in some ways, yeah, this idea of uh, encouraging and this is like this has always been the case. We've always had a, an economy that was also some t- in some ways supporting artists. Um, if you think about. Uh, uh, the renaissance uh, era we we did have uh, a lot of uh, very rich people supporting artists and this is how we we had the now the chance to have um, da vinci that uh, created all of these uh, beautiful paintings uh, I, i'd say it's one one way of seeing it is people do do support uh, these solopreneurs I do think that it's not necessarily doing that to just as a, a donation. They they probably see it more as a way of um, just liking the person. They they like the the service or product that are provided, and they're they're very good alternatives to what um, HBO uh, could provide. So if you think about uh, yeah, you mentioned Ninja, who is a, an influencer who plays uh, video games on Twitch. What he's basically offering is a very good alternative to watching Game of Thrones. And you you have a a very uh, big group of people who are very interested in just knowing what is going to be the next set of of jokes that Ninja is going to tell while playing these video games. And actually the video game becomes just an excuse to uh, have a a whole series of entertainments to watch. You mentioned context earlier and... I wanted to ask you a question. I, I think, I think I, if I understand a little bit about your recent blog post about job theory, that this rich concept of, of context that you have involves an understanding of not just sort of things like what does the, custo- the potential customer like or what's motivating them, but like what are they doing in their life yes. that where the product matters? What are they, 
they're trying to make you write about how they're trying to make progress in something yes yes indeed so context is actually a, a huge part of uh, what i um, wrote about in the value mix and it's thinking deeply about uh, the context in which um, your target audience or consumers are in when they they are about to choose to use your products or are actually using it. Uh, and this is something that is often um, overlooked by uh, marketers. The context is a really good source of opportunities because the context is all of this surrounding the environment that we're in that are going to trigger uh, this willingness to achieve some of these progresses or uh, outcomes that I uh, called goals, uh, but that can be called also jobs. And actually understanding the, the context can make such a difference when you, you either create a proposition or actually think about reaching out to your audience. One, uh, one interesting way of uh, framing it um, is this, uh, this story of when you think about people who, who go clubbing and tend to, to drink a bit to, uh, to enjoy their night out. It is much, much more likely than when they um, finish the night around 2, 3, 4, 5 a.m. They'll be uh, craving um, fast food. And so if you're a fast food company, actually putting some advertising outside the club or having a shop very close to a, an area where there are lots of clubs is a great idea because you will be able to drive uh, a lot of uh, customers in your, in your fast food uh, shop. And all of these reasoning go through the understanding of the context and what's going to trigger uh, the desire to have fast food. One of the things I found um, compelling as I was reading your, your work, including your book, The Value Mix, which I guess we'll move on to that part of the interview and talk directly about that, uh, is related to, I think related to something you mentioned earlier when you were talking about how a focus group is a very unnatural environment. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how to frame this question because it's kind of a big a big, a big issue, but you talk about also in your book about how, and I'll, I'll quote here, the complexity and variety of journey, journeys cannot be modeled accurately, end quote. And it's something I'm very sympathetic to. For example, when um, often in the, in, the, in the world of political polling, you'll hear, you know, 30% of Americans believe in Bigfoot or something like that. And what actually happened was 30% of, of people surveyed answered a question on a survey that way. Um, uh, and, and then what will happen is people will then take these reactions and they'll start uh, uh, describing them with scientific words like results and data and things like that, when actually what you've got is a really contrived kind of game rather than a scientific experiment. Uh, and I was just very interested to see that in your, in your work, that understanding uh, the human side of things and instead of perhaps relying on on, and you don't you don't go into this explicitly, but instead of relying on perhaps naive notions that if you just get more data, uh, you can have a better understanding of things. Um, instead of doing that, you should you should actually really try and get into the minds of the people that you're you're dealing with and try to find the right you know minimum viable audience at the beginning. Can you, is that am I am I onto something there? Is that something that you think about? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Len. Um, so. Uh, this quote um, is basically a part uh, of the book where I talk about uh, creating customer journeys. And I do believe that um, when we actually try to understand our target audiences, we basically what we're doing, and this is very similar when you do polling in, in politics, we're, we're basically creating a model of what's happening in the reality. Uh, because it's, <laughs> it's nearly impossible to, to grasp the complexity of what's happening in the, the reality. So what we're doing with the, our um, limited capabilities is to uh, simplify what's happening and turn that into a model that helps us make sense of the reality. And we're always creating these shortcuts. And they are, some are good, some are less good. Um, and I think there is a real power in acknowledging that. Um, the, the corporate world and the business world uh, have made it very difficult to, uh, to acknowledge that we aren't actually sure of anything. And when we, we create a model, even though we have lots of data, uh, there is still a lot of uncertainty around uh, what we're talking about. And this makes 
ourselves as business people very vulnerable when we accept that. And there's a real power in this vulnerability, just because then you start um, actually making decisions based on an accepted uh, level of identity. Yeah, it's, it's just, I found it just so interesting that you introduced basically epistemology into, into your discussion of uh, how one should think about marketing and the fact that there's basically there is, you know, this divorce between our consciousness and the nature around us means that we can have beliefs that don't correspond to reality at all. Uh, and uh, of course, um, and, and so you write things like, um, I'm quoting again here, what people believe to be true can predict future behaviors more accurately than demographic or socioeconomic attributes, end quote. And I really like that way of sort of trying to, because I think often people, what we, we have in the, in the sort of post-enlightenment world, we have this desire for everything to work the same way that chemistry experiments work. And so, you know, a, a, a water molecule here and a water molecule a million miles away and a water molecule a million years ago and a water molecule a million years from now are all the same thing. And because of that, we have all the wonders of, of scientific research and advancements and, and certainty. Uh, and and a, lot of, a lot of models for understanding humans actually could only work for, for real if humans were interchangeably identical in the way that molecules are assumed to be. Uh, and, that, and that this actually, as you say, makes people very vulnerable to making huge mistakes because each person is actually their own universe unto themselves with uh, not only, and as you point out, not only all kinds of beliefs that are driving their behaviors, but changing beliefs over time. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Um, and in these parties, as consumers, we, we all, or as humans, we all aspire to, to think really logically. And we, we do believe uh, on our own that we, we are very logical. But actually, if you take each individual separately, you realize that, yeah, we, we're all unique and we all have sets of uh, beliefs and biases that are um, shaping the way we make decisions. And there's a lot of power in understanding this human side of people when you're creating a, your marketing strategy. And how, how would you recommend, so for, if, someone, if someone is interested in doing some analysis, they've got an idea for a product or they think they've got an idea for a product, how would they go about establishing an understanding of this very rich kind of context that their audience, their audience, which is made up of, you know, maybe even existing customers, but also potential customers. How do they go about discovering that context? I think that one of the most powerful tools uh, to start with is actually uh, running an, ethnograph an ethnographic study, and which means hanging out and observing these people in their, uh, what we would, could call their natural environments. So most of the time we're so far removed from uh, the the people we want to serve in our businesses. We we think a lot about them, but we think about them from uh, our offices. And actually hanging out with them, interacting with them, asking questions is just one of the best ways to understand the, the context they're in, what is actually triggering uh, their goals, and what's, what are the customer journeys they go through themselves. Um, obviously, you realize that there's a massive diversity of customer journeys and everyone has actually slightly different triggers. But this is where by doing it repetitively, um, as well as running some uh, more quantitative studies, you can start forming models. And the, the more you, you get used to do it and the more you get used to um, you know your, um, your audience, the easier it becomes to create these models and the easier it becomes to actually shape the right propositions that are going to be highly meaningful and relevant for them. Yeah, that's really, I find that very compelling that, you know, the, uh, the idea that, you know, hanging out with people um, and, and being receptive to what's there uh, is, is so important for establishing an understanding of what's going on. And, and sort of, I, I think you, you write in your book about how and this, I found this quite striking. Uh, you say the idea of finding a solution to a problem creates a limiting belief because innovation is not all black and white. And that's just so interesting because to anyone you know, listening, so much of the literature that you'll read about you know, creating products and designing products and marketing products is supposed to begin with discovering what the customer's problem is and then providing a solution. But what, you, what you're arguing is that actually that, that framework uh, limits you in your understanding of, of the... Uh, you know, what what 
what is really happening with the customer, what the situation really is, which is a combination of things like their beliefs, their 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 jobs, uh, and their motivations. Yeah, totally. That's actually a very good point, Len. This is one of the big pieces of insights that led me to to write the book. Is you you see this uh, startup world that has been shaped uh, a lot by uh, um, engineers, and engineers are really really good at finding solutions to problems and. Uh, and this actually goes back to what we were saying earlier about um, the importance of language. This is some, uh, a model that can work and you can always find a way to um, shape a proposition as being a solution to, to a problem. The problem is this model is limiting. It's a limiting framework because you, you lose all of the nuances uh, that you can find in all of these human emotions that we were talking about earlier. Um, and I do believe that a lot of the, the successes that we see um, are actually not just a very good solution to a very specific problem, but are often much more than that. They engage emotionally with the, the users and customers, um, and they're able to create stories uh, that people are willing to talk about. Um, they create an experience that people are willing to engage with, um, and the way they do that is by actually understanding very well the emotions of the audiences they serve. Moving on to the final part of the interview, uh, I wanted to ask you why you chose LeanPub as a medium for your book. So it's actually a very, very uh, simple reason. And I mean, it, it, it links back to uh, all of the, the things we, we talked about before uh, with my experience working with startups, uh, as well as my experience working uh, in innovation with what if is I put a huge um, value on uh, experimenting and LeanPub was a great way for doing that it's a great way for, for me to um, put uh, my thinking out as early as possible and actually I think I could have done that earlier it did take me a bit of time to uh, be honest to, to go on LeanPub I, I did spend a, a few months uh, working uh, in um, in isolation, um, and I think it's actually in hindsight a good thing. Uh, we do we do talk about uh, putting the word out there as much as like as fast as possible, but there is also value in uh, being very clear on your thinking, and sometimes it means uh, isolating yourself a bit uh, from the market in order to create something that is very different from what uh, what is already out there. And so I, I took the time to do that. And then when I found that I was ready to, to put something that was quite new in terms of thinking, thinking that I could um, leverage to, to contribute to the, the main uh, business thinking that is already out there, I decided to, to do it with LeanPub because it gave me the, the flexibility to um, write, publish, and then kind of iterate as it went and as uh, people were reacting to, uh, to my, um, my writing. And one of the, the ways I did it is probably didn't have that many readers very early on. Uh, when I first uh, put uh, the, the, the initial draft version of uh, the value mix on LeanPub, but I actually used it as a way to engage with people I knew um, who could be very good at giving me feedback. Uh, and this was really, really useful uh, experience. The last question I always like to ask authors on this podcast is, if there was one thing you could ask us to build for you or one thing you could ask us to fix, what would you ask us to do? I think at the moment, LeanPub is a, is a really, really good uh, platform. I was wondering about the ability to... Um, to actually play a bit more with the the description and once the or and even the yeah the the description and kind of a b tests the the main uh, copies because that would be a good value to understand what is actually uh, hooking the the customers that, because that's a really great suggestion yeah that's something because most of the time when you think about a book uh, and the the description of a book. The description of a book is just a very, very small part of what the book is all about. Um, and 
it can be difficult uh, as an author to understand what is going to be the best parts of the book to hook customers mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. That's great. I'll uh, I'll communicate that to the team. Anyway, <laughs> that's uh, I, I, you 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 made me recall that like years ago we had a discussion we had a discussion about uh, A/B testing book a feature that would let authors A/B test book covers, uh, and and this would fit right in with that same same thing. That, that that can be a very useful uh, thing as well because yeah when i i decided to to start uh, writing the the value mix i did exactly the same as when i decided to start goudron blanc i tried to learn as much as possible so i reached out to people who i know that they have written books to understand uh, how they went through the journey as well as um, subscribe to lots of newsletters about book writing and actually realize that there is a massive uh, emphasis that authors put on covers. And covers can be actually the, the biggest trigger uh, for people to buy books. And when you really dig deep into, uh, into these insights, you realize that in many, many, many cases, actually uh, readers decide to, to buy a book just based on the, the color and the look of the cover. And you, you see that uh, big, uh, big publishers uh, such as Penguin are actually very, very good at creating uh, amazing uh, covers that uh, are getting you attracted to the book. Yeah, that's that's a really that's a really good insight. It's it's um, it's I would say to anyone listening who's writing a book on their own or thinking of self-publishing a book, uh, having a really good cover is particularly important if you're self-publishing because regardless, I mean, you know, like whether the the particular design you choose appeals to people who are, you know, interested in your particular genre or something like that. A very well-designed cover immediately gives people confidence that this is this is a product that's been made by someone who knows what they're doing and is trying to make something high quality. Definitely. And the the best way to figure out what the the best cover is is uh, is to experiment with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Thank you very much, Garrick. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it's 10 o'clock in the evening where you are, so thank you for giving some some uh, of your time to us when you could have been out and about in London uh, having fun. Uh, and uh, thanks very much for uh, your insights in marketing and for being a Lean Pub author. It was a real pleasure, Len. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks. And, of course, thanks as well to all of our listeners. If you like this episode, please leave a rating on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at FrontMatterCast. Thanks.